Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today, we are on episode 17. Today is February 20th. I'm here with my uh, co-host today, Pratik, and we have Nick back. Nick, he's a re- reoccurring guest. Today, we're actually just going to be kicking it off, talking about Trump's impeachment, uh, the failed impeachment uh, last week. So, Pratik, you just want to give us some background on the impeachment, and we'll just kick it off from there. Okay, so, again, I don't know if you guys remember, if this was a really big major news story. On January 6th, there was the riot that stunned the entire world. Five people died. Um, Most of them were not directly from the riot itself, but they were in the riot. And many emotions were all high when this stuff happened. Democrats felt that Trump was the one inciting the riot because he said fight like hell in one of his rallies. And basically when hundreds of people stormed into the building, that caused a lot of riffraff, a lot of People felt that their, you know, lives were at, you know, at risk that were in office. And it was a big deal. And many of the people that um, were involved in all that stuff, majority of them were regular peaceful protesters that weren't inside the Capitol. But the, the percentage of the people that did get inside the Capitol, they, I mean, you know, they made it scary for the people that were there. And, you know, apparently it's a big crime to, you know, go inside the Capitol when you're not supposed to. So well, well, it's is, not it's not apparently if you storm the Capitol, that should yeah. be a crime. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just that's my context. So we've talked about this in the past and there's a lot of opinions on every side to it. But basically, this was all blamed on Trump. And that I mean, generally, presidents that were previously presidents are not um, impeached or attempted to be impeached because they're no longer in office. But Donald Trump is an exception because Democrats love to try to impeach Donald Trump. And this was, as soon as Biden took office, this was one of the first like, you know, steps that he wanted to take was to try to impeach Donald Trump for this inciting of the riot. And this got through the House, it went to the Senate. And obviously with the House being majorly Democratic controlled, it didn't have a problem, but the Senate, you need a two thirds majority in order to actually convict Donald Trump. So this was debated for almost a week. Um, There was thoughts that this might last for two, three months if they called witnesses and they had a vote to have witnesses. But because they didn't have enough Democrat, they didn't have enough Republicans on board with the 67 needed, they just decided to do the vote instead of going through that long drawn out process of waiting for three, four months because more than likely the result was already called and Democrats knew that. So the Senate voted on last Saturday, 57 to 43, where all the Demo- all the 50 Democrats all voted for to impeach Donald Trump, while seven other Republicans, Richard Burr from North Carolina, Louisiana's Bill Cassidy, Maine's Susan Collins, Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, Utah's Mitt Romney, Nebraska's Ben Sass, and Pennsylvania's Pat Toomey, all voted to impeach Donald Trump. And out of those, the two oddballs were Bill Cassidy and my senator from North Carolina, Richard Burr. And yeah, there's been all that controversy. So, so there's so that. So Pratik, let, let's just break this down a little bit. And I want to get Nick's thoughts on this as well. So uh, just the whole idea of impeaching Trump a second time after he had already been voted out of office, essentially. And I, I understand the events occurred while he was in office. But Nick, do you think it was worth our time, even for a week, to spend time impeaching Trump? Do you think it was valuable uh, in uniting the country? Do you think 
it led to a better outcome if, if we hadn't done it otherwise. Um, I, from my perspective, it just seemed like a giant waste of time. Let's say they did end up calling witnesses and it didn't end up lasting two or three months. Instead of spending time fixing all of the so many issues, like even with this Texas power outage, the storm that happened, there's so many issues going on. And it just seems like uh, uh, completely for optics, completely for the parties to say, hey, we're actually going to impeach you even though you're out of office, even though it really has no practical significance. Yeah, so I think uh, both our court system and our democracy is heavily reliant on precedent and being able to point to past examples for ways that we can conduct ourselves in the future. And I think if you have something on this scale where it is largely unprecedented, um, it is worth the time to try your case, push it to the fullest extent, and see where that takes you. Now, I totally agree with you that obviously there are more pressing issues going on. There always are. Um, but one of the benefits of the Senate is that you get to work on a ton of different issues, go over them and vote on them uh, simultaneously. So um, while I do understand your point and I would agree with it, um, respectfully, I would say just due to the nature of one, how like for partly it's partly I'm going to say it's the media, which, you know, big, big surprises there. But for, you know, the weeks after it, they were like, oh, my God, Trump did all of this. It's all his fault. Something has to happen. And for the Democrats to not try to do anything, I think would have looked bad for them. And I mean, the past four years, they've been after the guy. The first year they try to impeach him. Nothing happened. Second year, try to impeach him again. Nothing happened. Third year, they impeached him. It's stuck in the House, failed in the Senate. So this year they were going for round four. Uh, but I think they should have just stuck with lucky three. And uh, the, those are my initial thoughts. Okay. Do you think, but do you think the precedent of constantly trying to impeach your president is a good precedent to be set? Because to me, that's almost worse than doing nothing at all. That's, that's where, that's where I'm at. Yeah, I, I would agree with you and critique, feel free to jump in as well. Cause I, I know you're pretty opinionated on this one, but I think so full disclosure, I did not listen to the entire impeachment trial, but from what I did listen to, I listened to the closing arguments and I think Trump's defense lawyers did a much better job than the prosecution. They actually pulled on precedent. They actually went down the road and said, hey, Democrats, remember all the riots that happened last summer? Remember how Nancy Pelosi told people to go out onto the streets and take action? Remember all that stuff? How would you like it if once you lose your majority, Republicans do the exact same thing to you and try to impeach your members? Think about what you're doing. And to me, that was pretty compelling. It's just this, you get into this tit for tat and to your point of unifying the country going forward, I mean, obviously, it, it does not unify the country to go ahead and try to prosecute the most popular uh, political figure on the other side of the aisle. Um, but again, from what I said earlier, I think there's no precedent here. They were trying to establish something. It's the Democrats' whole narrative. I think they had to give it a try. Cool. So, Pratik, what do you, what do you think about that? So... Yeah, with Nick, like I would honestly say it doesn't really matter much anymore. Like I feel like um it's happy that it's good it's a good thing that Trump did get acquitted because now Democrats can move on to more important things. But I just had my few thoughts on this stuff because there was a lot of other things that did take place. So one of the main issues that caused a lot of this stuff to even get into more of an upper scale was Tommy Tuberville, who is a senator from Alabama, saying that he was that Trump had a call with McCarthy and in the call he basically wanted to put Joe Biden's life at I mean not Joe Biden Mike Pence's life at risk 
and because Mike Pence didn't stand up for Donald Trump. And this was basically one of their other things that they were trying to point out that Tuberville was trying to say that Trump was inciting the riot. But my issue with a lot of that stuff is that Tuberville didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump. So like that was all a waste of time if that was all hyped up because Tuberville was the senator of Alabama said that Donald Trump was inciting the riot. And then you had all these. I don't think it was just him though. Thrown out there too. The no, Democrats, no, know. you know. But I know, I know. But that was one of the things that they were hyping on. And many of the people, like Lindsey Graham, decided to call witness, wanted to call witnesses because of Tuberville's statement. Okay. And that was all the other side stories of everything going on. And then I'm sure there were people like Bill Cassidy and Richard Burr that devoted against Donald Trump for all kinds of different reasons that may have not been with the impeachment itself. But that was why it was all brought to the forefront. Do you, you don't think storming the Capitol was the reason, though? I just feel like so many people saw it on TV and were like, holy shit. And then all those congressmen it, and senators were like, we have to do something about that because, holy shit, they just stormed the it, Capitol. That's how it I was. Said. But think about who stood up. The Republicans that stood up, they didn't feel Donald Trump was the one that caused the riots. Not condoning the riots. Okay. None of them condoned the riots and said the riots were a good thing. They, they were arguing that Donald Trump wasn't the one that incited the riot. And it was also a large, you know, it was kind of a hard call to say that he did incite the riots from him just go, saying fight like hell. So well, that's my issue is that well, there wasn't. Uh-oh. I mean, look. <laughs> critique in all fairness. Here, I'll let you finish. And then I would like to jump in if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm just, I'm just arguing that there wasn't much clippings and there wasn't much footage of Donald Trump actually inciting anything. And my main issue here was that there was, it was so hard to tell any actual information because people said some things and then voted against what they were saying, like Tuberville. Then you also had all these fake tweets that were put out there from a lot of Democratic members on what was going on and that were trying to show that Trump incited the riot. And there was just like, it was too much he said, she said. And even if Donald Trump did actually incite the riots, it was so hard to prove anything. And I'm happy that they just kind of did the vote because you weren't going to get 67 anyway. So they didn't drag it out for three, four months. So we can go back to doing more important things and trying to impeach a former president that's never going to be president again. Pratik, so that's very fair what <laughs> you were saying. No, in terms of him, one, one, based on how he's posturing, I wouldn't put it out of the question that he would run again for some sort of political office, I agree with that. whether that's the presidency or something else. Um, clearly he remain he wants to stay in the game as for whether or not he was inciting anything. I think if we look back a couple months, I mean, back in September, he was saying this is two months before the election even happened when he was still in charge of the federal government saying, Hey, this whole thing is going to be rigged. They're going to steal the election from you. It's all going to be a huge fraud. You've never seen anything like it. They're going to take our country. And we got to do something about could it. I, could and I he respond said that, to that Nick for one second. Well, hold on. Uh, let me build my case, you. if I may, Pratik. So he he sets that up for two months, right? The election happens. He loses. He keeps going through it. He battles through the court system. His own judges, who he had appointed federally, threw out all of his team's cases. And then what happens? A bunch of people start to come to the Capitol. They have this big rallying day. Oh, Mike Pence, there's something in the Constitution. It's hidden. He's going to stand up. He's going to overturn the results. He's going to save the day. And Mike Pence didn't do any of that. And what happened was what uh, I think there's a Supreme Court case because 
you know, whether or not he incited it, I think it matters a lot in the words that he said, right? That's what you're trying to prove. Did he or did he not specifically say, go do violence at the Capitol, go break yeah. in, that sort of stuff. And there's this case, Brandenburg, that Trump's lawyers brought up and said that that established the precedent where you either need to explicitly or implicitly call for lawlessness or violence. And he said, the lawyers said that the insurrection and that event was pre-planned and was going to happen regardless of whether or not Trump had said things that day. It was already an event that was happening. People had gathered there who weren't necessarily at his rally. But what I would say is that when someone starts a violent mob, if that is happening, and then you tell people that you're talking to that are following you, hey, there's that mob on the other side of town, go march over there and join up with them and fight like hell for our democracy. At some point, are you not just adding fuel to the fire and promoting that behavior? So all, all I'd say is the beginning part, when you're talking about the September rigged elections and all that, you look at this election. Did that seem like a genuine, like 100% genuine election to you? The election took six days to call, first off. Every other election that we've had since like Washington was president has taken one day to call. This took six days. Some states like Alaska took six, it took six to 10 days to count. Then you had states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Michigan, that all, I said Michigan twice, Pennsylvania, <laughs> Michigan, and Minnesota that like went, were like overnight changes and votes went, were from going for Donald Trump became Biden votes overnight, all of a sudden where people just kept counting all night long. So my point is there was a lot of different things that happened in this election. And I mean, sure, there was the absentee ballot process stuff. That's fair. But we have always had, um, what is it, votes? I mean, people have always early voted. And they decided, whoever the election counters were, to not do the same absentee process as the early voting process, causing there to be a lot more riffraff because why count billions of votes on one day after having them there for so long? So there was all kinds of other issues along with buses coming in late. And we've all, we all know that. Republicans and Democrats all know that this election stuff was kind of strange. And the thing is, the Democrats don't admit it. And obviously, they did went through their case and they didn't find anything. So I'm not saying that there was any rigging or anything like that involved. But for a Republican context, I'm sure if this was the other way around, and let's say Biden was the one that was the, that got flipped over and Biden was winning in the beginning, and then all of a sudden Trump wins in the end, Democrats would be like, oh, Trump rigged the election. He said he'd rigged the election and he ended up rigging the election. And Trump would say, no, it was a fair election. Everything went yeah, fair. Exactly. That, that's hey, the for, problem. Hey, for team, remember is, in 2016 when at yeah, that night Hillary was ahead and then we all went to a sleep and people counted votes over exactly. the night and then we woke up and Trump was president. Remember when that happened? Yes, I do. And my point is that is that this whole situation that happened was not any different. It was just the reaction that the Democrats had was much more different and how Republicans kind of just like fell apart is was much more different than how the Democrats did it. I honestly commend the Democrats because if 
that that whole election 2016 was rigged and there was all the situation they fought for that crap for four years they tried to impeach donald trump every single year because hillary clinton didn't become president and they didn't like hillary clinton they just didn't like donald trump so like my point is that they went through all that process they went through all those hearings and we all knew it was a waste of time because they didn't have enough votes to actually impeach donald trump anyway but they did it and my point is that they couldn't stop to even impeach Donald Trump even after he wasn't president anymore. Like no president has ever gotten that treatment. I'm not saying Donald Trump is a great president. I'm not saying Donald Trump is a god. I'm not saying Donald Trump is the worst president. I'm just saying that Donald Trump went through so much crap from the other side that like if I was Donald Trump, fuck this, screw politics, screw being running for president. This is such a waste of time. He's a billionaire. He's living the life of luxury. The dude literally controlled New York and New Jersey politics. For what if he's an attention years. whore and he just wants attention yeah, and that's not, why he I'm wants just, to be president? Because that's saying, what I think it's an ego thing. I think his ego is so big. He's like, I need to run the free world. I agree. Like, that's how I see. And I'm just, I'm just arguing with nick about what he said in september what he said that yo donald trump called this stuff just saying your argument could be made that any of these people incited riots nancy it was the aoc was trying to argue back then that oh all these people should go onto the streets and burn up some buildings sure. because yo but, we need to prove black lives but matter 100 but you got to understand you kind of reap what you sow and this is what i see with trump in, remember, we we were on this podcast in September, and what did I yeah. say about Trump saying the election was a fraud? I say this this this. No matter the outcome, we're all fucked because of what he's done, and because of that, the whole situation arose. I think he caused the situation by preemptively saying the election is going to be a fraud, and if he'd won, he would have said it was fair. We and both would you would you and, say that 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 was all called like literally? If Donald Trump said in September this is going to okay, happen, I'm not. It did I happen. don't think. I don't think legally like did, things did. They were weird that did happen. I don't think election. you can legally say he incited it, but I can say his his ineptitude and uh, just not thought out action led to this outcome. Whether it's his fault or not, it doesn't matter. He he brought us to the table. The only reason we're having the conversation is because he fucked up before then. So I'm saying he he. This is what I what I mean by reap what he so. If you're gonna set up for an election to be fraud. You're going to have chaos in the end. Like, what do you expect? What what good outcome do you expect to come from that? So I I, I kind of saw it coming and I, I did see it coming. And that's why it's hard for me to be sympathetic with, with Trump, even if I think it's a waste of time to impeach him after he left office. I, I fully agree and will concede that I do. I mean, personally, I think it's a waste of time to go ahead and impeach him after he's out of office. If he was still in office, this would be a totally different story. Now and that I he's a private that, citizen, sure. I don't think you should go ahead and go like, oh my God, he's the president. We got to try him in the Senate. No, he's a private citizen. Try him in the court system like everyone else. I agree yeah. with what Nick's saying. And I would just say that like, yeah, final it wouldn't have we'll been on. any different if Donald Trump did win. And if this riot did happen, and let's say that they, this riot happened for other reasons, just because people didn't want to accept Donald Trump won, if Donald Trump did win that election and there was a riot from Republicans, Donald Trump would have tried to be impeached in the fifth year, sixth year, seventh year, and eighth year, because he was tried to impeach the first year, second year, third year. Democrats are setting year. a bad precedent with that. I like, moving forward, that, that's going to be bad Did for you everyone. ever see this stuff in the past? Did you ever see Republicans trying to impeach Obama? The Republicans hated Obama. I'm not saying Obama was great. I'm not saying Obama was bad. I'm just saying Republicans hated Obama. Democrats hated George W. Bush. Republicans hated Bill Clinton. 
Bill Clinton was the last person they tried to impeach for legitimate things. The dude literally tried to rape somebody, and it was proven in the Supreme Court. Well, like, I don't know. Trump's got some last... issues. <laughs> yeah, stopped. I know. But that was the last time we tried to impeach a president. And my point is that now this is going to be the newer precedent from now on, because as soon as Joe Biden gets in the third year, Republican Democrats probably know that as soon as Republicans win the majority, if they do again, then they're going to try to impeach Joe Biden and they might go for it because they want Kamala Harris to be president. And my point is that that all that stuff is not how you want to run the country. And I feel really crappy if you were a Trump supporter or in the future, if you're a Biden supporter, because all this Hunter Biden stuff we already knew about, but they decided to wait till, you know, he became president to try to throw in all sure. that information because you didn't deserve to know that. I didn't deserve to know that because we're stupid people. Well, we make, we make opinions. You're understandably upset about the situation and we completely get that. Yeah. I, I think we've div- dove into this enough. Yeah, Next yeah, up, we have our <laughs> Texas power outages. Uh, these have been sweeping the nation because even for me, like I have packages being shipped out of a Texas center that have just been on hold for a week because it's just so chaotic. Mail shut down. People are, are freezing to death, essentially. They have food shortages. This is just a crazy time. So this is the first time there's been a major snowstorm like this since the 1980s. Um, and what is it? it and since then, it hasn't really been a major snowstorm. And what the problem is, is that because there hasn't been a major snowstorm like this, there was no way that the government themselves in Texas could have anticipated anything to this magnitude. There was 20 inches of snow and the last time there was a snowstorm was in 1983. So that's a long gap. And my issue is that usually I'm against the government because I'm me, so I don't like the government. But in this situation, I feel bad for Texas because I I mean, it, I, was, I was having this similar situation in my own way of thinking. So whenever all this stuff happened in the power outages, in North Carolina, we had something similar happen in Greensboro. And most of all of our hotels and the airport exit where wherever all the stuff was going on was where we've been having 16 to 20% occupancy. So that means like if you have like 20 rooms sold in a, out of 120 rooms that you have, which is really, really bad. So what, what has been the situation is most of us all had like two or three housekeepers on staff because we weren't prepared for something like this. And usually that's all you can't have over you can't be overstaffed when some situations like this happen so this was like if 20 days straight there you had 20 rooms and then on the 21st day you had 120 room demand Mm. and all of a sudden you can't go find six new housekeepers to try to clean up all them rooms and get them ready so you're gonna get as many rooms as you can get, which may be 80 to 90 rooms. So you're still not gonna be full, even if you have the demand to be full. And it's the same situation. It's kind of a weird way to look at this, but it's the same thing with Texas. With Texas, what could you have done? Like they had this power grid system in place, not anticipating that there would be this major snowstorm that, I mean, hasn't happened in like 30 years. And it was so massive that there was like power outages throughout people started to die. There wasn't, there's not enough water available for everybody. And like, I feel bad because I honestly could say, I commend people like Cuomo, Abbott in this situation. And like, what is it? DeSantis. Because the fact that these people, or Newsom, because the fact that these people went through, have to go through so much crap and have like millions of people pissed off at them because of things that happened. Like there's nothing you could done. And 
I honestly well, feel for these people because well, if I was a citizen, I would be pissed. But I mean, but, but I can't, can't say the government did anything wrong. Can't you? Um, can't you say through COVID and now this that maybe we should be expecting these unexpected events over time? How maybe we should that, be preparing for things that could happen because it's it seems like a lot of these once in a lifetime events are just happening all at once, right? Uh, from my perspective, first of all. Obviously, heart goes out to people in Texas. I know some people in Dallas-Fort Worth area. In fact, I work with a few of them. Uh, they're on my remote team, and some of them weren't logged on this week, and I have no idea what's going on with them. So I really hope people in Texas are doing well. Um, but for me, I, I think the situation, Pratik, you drew some parallels between the 80s, but I think you have a double whammy here. Tyler mentioned covid and that's part of it. When you have a power outage and when you're trying to recover from these events, what do you do? If you are a person in your neighborhood or community, let's say other houses have power, you are terrified of getting into close proximity and space with other people who may have COVID, where yeah. you're very conscious that people could be very sick. Mm. But on the other hand, if you're freezing your ass off, aren't able to cook food, aren't really taking showers, if you have all that stuff going on, at some point, you have to sort of bite the bullet and take that risk of saying, I could get seriously sick, or I'm just going to end up being freezing. I'm not going to have power the rest of it. So I think it's a really terrible situation. Um, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't talked about the Ted Cruz stuff at all. But one thing that's actually bothered me a little bit um, from liberal media, just to be a little introspective here, is the fact that they say, oh, it's because it's not regulated, because there's a federal energy regulatory uh, committee or commission, FERC, and they sort of govern utility transmission throughout the country. And Texas is not part of that system. However, I am from a state that is part of FERC. I am from a state with a lot of regulatory controls over utility companies. And yet, when I went to visit my parents over the summer, there was a major outage after a storm. We lost power for a full week. And even in this very liberal state with a ton of regulatory control, even though we had storms 10 years ago where they put together public reports, had hearings on this and said, yes, we will plan for storms in the future. Yes, we will you know, do all the tree trimming. We will make sure that if this ha event happens again, we'll be prepared. And then they charge people a bunch of money and don't do anything about it. Even in that type of state, that very liberal state with a ton of government, the same thing happened. So when it comes to weather events, I think you know, immediately you're like, who's to blame? What's going on? But like you were saying, Pratik, very unlikely scenario in Texas. You can only plan so much. But I think the most important thing right now is just getting that response right. And if the Biden administration, yeah. which just declared a federal emergency, if they don't get their shit together, and this turns out to be something like Katrina with George W. Bush, I think it's going to be a major stain on the administration in its earliest days. I agree. And so let me let me give you the context. Just and, and thanks for more. shitting on Connecticut, so, by the way. I think I think we should think they deserve it. Moved out of there exactly. for a reason. Yes. So there were 325,000 homes and businesses remain without power, um, down from 3 million the day earlier. This was all as of tech, as of Thursday. So, and then there was a bunch of blackouts and there's a lot of people without electricity. So the issue is really bad. And my, my only thing is I'll add this to what I was saying is that that there, this, if this was a constant problem and that there were power outages that were happening every year, then like you can be prepared for it. But if that's not the case, it's hard to. Like I honestly feel really bad that there were all these people that were impacted and hurt and through this entire process. But it's like 
it's one of those that's like the percentage of something like a snowstorm happening in Texas is almost like a terrorist attack or a massive hurricane like Katrina. Like it is, I mean, it's Texas. And with the Ted Cruz thing that you were bringing up, like, like there's also this talk that with the Texas crisis, because the energy industry is a big backer of the current power grid and how the current power grid is not met to be able to sustain some kind of major snowstorm like this it is an issue they need to look at in the future but the problem is that like if they were planning all this stuff ahead since like the 1980s that oh we might have a have a snowstorm in 30 years it would have been a lot of government servants that probably would have had to do a lot more work uh, handling this expensive power grid to make sure that something like this doesn't happen and you would have had a lot of pissed off people the same people that are um, you know, impacted right now because they would have probably had to pay all that stuff and more taxes and trying to, you know, manage that big old power grid system. Is it okay so for like, Ted Cruz to leave? Do you think, like, is it is it reasonable for a oh, public servant thing? to leave during a time of crisis? I think that's a good question. And that's a I, question that's been asked. I think that, I mean, this stuff happens. If you were a citizen in Texas and you knew that this power stuff was going to happen and when it does happen, you will probably try to get out too. And with yeah, but as, Cruz, as the leader, yes, as the leader, Ted Cruz is not the governor, he's the senator. And I think that's, made, that's an important thing to know. So if okay. Greg Abbott decides he wants to leave the situation and get out of Texas, then that would not be the right thing to do because he has to handle all these millions of people that are in that state that are all pissed off that they don't have any power, right? So with Ted Cruz, because he's a senator, I don't think it's that big of an issue because he can just go sit in Washington DC and sleep over there. Like, it's not like it's the same scenario we can bring out there. I'm not saying it's a good thing or bad thing. I'm just saying it's a bad look. No like doubt. It's a this, terrible look. Yes, it's it's terrible. such a bad look. look. It is. I'm just defending that because this kind of stuff probably does happen a lot. Whenever there is some major contra- major crisis like this, when there's a hurricane that happens in a state or whatever, if you are a rep or you're a senator, you're whole, you have two homes in DC and in your state where it's happening, so you can probably go stay in that in your you know. In you DC can, but should like, you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it depends on perspective. I, I feel like to some extent, I'm not here to defend Ted Cruz. I'm not saying what he did was right, but I mean, he's not responsible for any of this stuff. He's just a senator. All senators do is they waste time yelling about different things and never accomplish anything. That's the Senate. Congress is a waste of time as it is. The governments and the states are the ones that actually have to deal with all these people and handle all these crises whenever they have to. So I can't really say that like I'm pissed off at Ted Cruz because I expect that from senators. They're a waste of time people. They don't do nothing. <laughs> They're re- like, literally, Optimist. think about it this way. What, what is Congress's problem? Why does Congress have such a low approval rate? They spend every year trying to impeach Donald Trump. They have a conflict. That's not, that's not, that's not the reason. That's not the reason. You know that's not the reason. Let me add to this. They haven't really passed any actual bills. Um, major bills that get passed, they want to get passed. They throw in these big old packages, just <clears throat> like this $1.9 trillion stimulus package we're going to talk about. They just like to throw in all this other stuff that has nothing to do with the bill. And well, when you have like 500 people, passed, it's going to be hard to negotiate. Yeah, I just think the more people you have, the harder it is to negotiate. I'm, that's- I'm just criticizing Congress because the 
what they argue about, what they talk about, and what they actually do when they get into office, they don't really correlate with one another. That's and true. And I actually, like, I'm commending these people that are in these big states, like New York and California and Texas, because the amount of work and effort that probably goes into just, you know, handling all these people and helping make sure that they can keep all these people safe, like helping provide all this water and stuff to all these people and helping provide electricity in any which way possible. That's a hard task. And I honestly feel like a lot of these people that are government servants don't get paid enough for a lot of the stuff that they end up doing. And I feel bad that, I mean, that's your government. The people that are in Congress are not your government. Those are just random bozos that get elected every like six years to just go sit up there and do nothing for six years and then argue in their fifth year. Oh, look at what I've done. You need to reelect me because I'm the best representative you can get. And people get on board because he's their senator. Pratik, you know, we've chatted a few times on this podcast about a lot of things concerning government. And frankly, I'm shocked. Do my ears deceive me right now? Because it sounds like you, the man against big government, is praising all these government employees and this huge deep state apparatus that is actually (laughs) helping people. I'm very surprised because honestly, when it comes to utility stuff, I used to work in that sector. And a lot of the people who are out there who are the workers are storing power, working double overtime, crazy shifts in the freezing cold. They're private. They're private workers. They're private contractors. They work for these utility companies. They're investor owned. And this is private business that's helping America recover and build back and keep these families safe. So I'm surprised that you're praising government and not any of the local businesses that are okay, trying so I, okay. hard to make a difference. I'll praise them too, <laughs> we switch man. roles not, here? What's going no, on? No, no, no. I'm, I'm praising them yeah. too. I'm just criticizing Congress. Because I feel like, I mean, this Ted Cruz thing, I mean, it shows these senators don't really care about you or me or any of the people that live in your state. They're just there to, you know, make their paycheck for six years and then they get reelected for another. But you said year. they don't get paid enough, so should they get paid no, more? No, no, not the senators. True. Minimum wage people, increase, critique. Is that what I hear? No, 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 no. <laughs> people that are in your state that are handling a lot of these crises, they need to be like you know looked at, and they need to be like you know they need to be commended for a lot of the stuff that they do because things like this, where this Texas stuff happens, like. I, you can't blame the state in this situation. And I honestly feel like the people that are working out there, your regular frontline workers, and the people that are in your local governments and every, literally everybody that's trying to help out, like they have done a lot of stuff to try to mitigate some of the crises that have happened. And what I hate about Congress people is that this is what Congress does. They just sit there in their offices, yell about a few things every time they come on in their committees, and then literally pass no bills accomplish literally nothing and then come back to run for re-election get re-elected and do the same thing over again and like the people your regular workers they're not getting any respect they're not getting you know like they're not getting the condone they're getting criticized by those people that are in those states because they're pissed off at the government and they're the people that are facing the brunt of it and I feel like, you know, as somebody that studied politics and has done whatever I've done, like, I feel bad for a lot of those people because I get it. A lot of us people, regular people, we don't get paid jack to work some of the stuff. We're just doing it because we care about our country or care about, you know, our state. And we don't get any respect for any of that. For ourselves. So, yeah. So I, I just I just feel bad for you know regular government workers in those states because and reg in anybody that's helped out because they have gone through a lot because of what has happened 
And then people like Ted Cruz don't really care. And with that, let's hop into our next topic. We were going to talk about the GameStop hearings this week, but I actually think it might be more interesting to talk about uh, Biden, uh, the nuclear, the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord and us re-entering. I think that's a good discussion, especially to have with Nick. So just to kick it off, the Iran nuclear deal, is it back on the table? And we just rejoined the uh, Paris Climate Accord. Is that a good thing? So Nick, I'll have you kick that one off. So for the Paris Climate Accord, if we want to start with that one, I think it's a really good thing. Um, I went to the UN climate conference in 2018 that was being held in Poland. And while I was there, it was very apparent that the United States, like the lack of US authority, influence and presence was held, was felt very strongly. You had a bunch, sure, you have some foundations, you have some nonprofits that showed up, but all these other countries, I mean, frankly, it's embarrassing that we're letting other these European countries who I despise, who I look down on, who I'm <laughs> disgusted by, we're better than them. They should not be leading the way. I walked by, like, for example, um, there was a there was a coffee place there and a bunch of, you know, small tables where people could, you know, just take a break from the conference, chat with each other, whatever. Table next to me, it was a guy from Northern Europe talking to a, uh, a developing country and start, starting to talk through some financing mechanisms for, okay, we recognize that there's a huge issue how can we help you guys not rely on fossil fuels? How can we help finance these projects? And what, how, how can we benefit each other by working together here? And those small coffee chats that were going on, even on the sidelines, I think sort of puts us to shame because we're not center stage. We're not doing anything. And granted, Paris Climate Agreement, it really is symbolic in a lot of ways. But just getting people signed on, getting every country in the world signed on to something is a huge step. And it's embarrassing when it's like the United States and the biggest, biggest petro state in the, in the world, like Saudi Arabia, and I think Russia too, hadn't signed on yet. And we're the only other ones. I mean, even China's bothered yeah, to sign that's, on. Yeah, but that's the problem I have. You can sign and not do anything. And yeah, we are going to be held to certain regulations that we will abide by. But we know our competitors don't want to abide by certain certain regulations. So even if China says they're on board, it's almost as just a fuck you to the USA. Aren't they creating the much largest, more pollution than we are? The largest polluters in the world are China and India. And to some extent, some countries like Saudi Arabia have actually done more to try to promote sustainability than even... No, don't countries. give me that shit. Don't give me that <laughs> According shit. According to the Guardian. No, 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 no. According to you. the Guardian. No, 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 hold on. I've literally read... Okay, I've legitimately read through the documents and Saudi Arabia's... Um, Listen, I don't Saudi care Arabia's Saudi document Arabia literally says, <laughs> no matter what happens with climate and sustainability, if we lose money because of the stuff you guys do, then we're out. We're gone. Goodbye. And it's like, why'd you even sign on? Saudi Arabia is a joke. I'm sorry. I'm not okay. I'm not promoting Saudi Arabia. You probably know more than me. I'm just saying that this is based on their numbers that they have from the Guardian that ranks America 24th in the world in environmental performance. Saudi Arabia is ranked 90, which is horrible. But China's ranked 120 and India's ranked 168. That means Saudi Arabia is better off in the scale than countries like India and China who have much it, more power it, on the It really comes down scale. to, are you a political realist or not? Like, how do you think it, it, countries can work together in these large international I, I organizations? It's a waste I'm of pretty, time. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. I'm skeptical, it but it's necessary. I'm skeptical, but I, yeah. I see its utility and I see that we need to get there, but I'm not sure we are there. I would one, say, one more thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Pratik. 
Oh, I would just say one more thing I would add is that, I mean, since we left the Paris Climate Accords, it hasn't really changed how we, what we've been doing environmentally in our country. The fact is that we've become more environmentally friendly throughout these last four years. And that might not be because of Trump. I'm not saying that's because of Trump. I'm not saying it's not because of Trump. I'm saying it's because of the rise in environmental competition that's come from green energy companies trying to get on the you know main stage and competing with a lot of these other you know current companies that are providing energy. And to some extent, America has done a lot of stuff on that platform. We're not that bad. We get criticized for being like you know horrible on the environmental stage and all this stuff, but we're not. We're I think we get criticized for not leading. 25. Like, and that's, I mean, that's fair, but all of these agreements haven't accomplished anything. Kyoto Protocol, for example, I don't know if you Which we didn't that. sign on to. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we didn't sign on to in 2004. when We Bush were one of the there. only countries not to. We actually went to that. Difference? We went no? there and well, it did for <laughs> HFCs and other ozone depleting substances. It made a huge difference. That's why the ozone layer is no longer an issue because I'm, of, because of agreements <laughs> like that. I'm just saying that like, in many cases, I agree that you need to be on the international stage. I am a realist, but I mean, that's where I kind of am 50-50 on. I feel like because America is America and we're involved in literally everything in the world, America has to be involved anyway. But in this particular situation, the reason that Donald Trump did lead the Paris Climate Accord was because they didn't do anything. And I have my issue, my only issue with joining it back I don't really think it's going to accomplish anything whether you join it or whether you're not in it. So I'm indifferent on this whole situation because I feel like America is doing a lot of stuff on the environmental stage without being in there and by being in there. But what I have an issue with is Biden did uh, got back into it by an executive order. All of these other things, all of these other controversial things that, you know, these idiots have argued about for four, four years when Donald Trump was there because we needed to prove that democracy exists and we want to make sure that everybody's views count. They don't really matter when Biden's president because we decided to join this back with the, you know, executive order. Well, did we leave like, it with that. an executive order? Did Trump, so. <laughs> did Trump put, give an executive order to say we're going to leave? I mean, that and that kind of makes sense to me. This it is the does. tit for tat thing. And this is why things are going to get worse. If the precedent we're setting now is going to be enacted on in the future. And my my point is that whenever Trump was there, this is what these same people like Biden were complaining about is we needed to go through the congressional process and we need to make sure that there was a vote count on it before we just automatically leave from the Paris Climate Accords. And I think there was some kind of vote that did happen because the Republicans did have a majority in the first term, first part of the Donald Trump election or time. But then, like, I guess the House, I think, voted on getting back into the Paris Climate Accords in his second part of his term. And that's when Trump basically said that he's not going to do that. But mm. my point is like, that's that. But I just feel like Biden is such a hypocrite on all of this stuff. He spent him and his people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi spent so long arguing, oh, we need to follow the democratic process. And the democratic process has not really existed in the Biden. It's only when it's convenient for them. I think we just kind of have to accept that people are going to say what's convenient for them but, at the time, especially if they're politicians that have two year, four year, six year terms. And I've funny. kind of just accepted that as part of the system because how is it going to change? In terms of numbers, Biden has accomplished more in his like three, four weeks than Trump had because of executive orders. He just got whatever he wanted to do and he did it. And the irony is that 
I mean, they were arguing that, oh, Trump is a dictator. He's just, he just does whatever he wants. He tries to, he forces people to do what he wants and doesn't listen to what the people want and go through the democratic process. Biden's doing 10 times worse than Joe and then Donald Trump was like, yeah, literally with the Paris climate accords, like, it's not like you're going to accomplish anything if you're in it or if you're not in it. But as but, Nick but, said, it so, looks good. Well, but that's the thing. Him, but I think Nick's argument, you could tell me if I'm wrong, would be it looking good is enough because it looking good means uh, as whatever country Zimbabwe is like, oh, oh, they're doing it now. We got to get serious. We got to do this. They well, lead the world. This is what not, not necessarily that. It's more <laughs> when we're trying to negotiate bilateral agreements and treaties with other countries, mm. it doesn't give us any credibility if we're out of the agreement. And then suddenly we, we have to say, oh, if you want to trade with the United States, you need higher climate and environmental standards. And they're like, oh, get real. You're not even in the Paris Accord. Who are you guys? Even we're signed on to that. So I think part of it is just being able to posture, using it as a talking point. Um, and having that position, the final thing I would say on it, because I think this is a nice segue into the Iranian thing yeah. um, in terms of global security and what role a president has in preserving that or promoting it. Um, but I believe personally, I believe a lot in personal responsibility. When you mess up, I think you have to try to make things right or take some st some steps to rectify your actions. And when it comes to pollution and climate, Pratik, you are absolutely right that in this point in time, China is the biggest emitting country in the world. But historically, the United States accounts for a vast majority, or not a majority, but a plurality of emissions that have occurred. So I think we sort of have a responsibility in a way, now that we've developed so much, to sort of start blazing that path forward so that others, you know, taking, taking that responsibility. Also, from a national security perspective, we have United States military bases all over the world. And if some, for example, in Southeast Asia, where we have, you know, very highly contested, not really Cold War at this point, but tensions are tight between us and China and sea rise and other environmental issues relating to climate change in Southeast Asia are going to play a major role in that conflict. If you have millions of climate refugees fleeing from Southeast Asia, going to other parts of the world like Australia and other places, that's going to destabilize the world that, frankly, America benefits most from in terms of trade, military security, and the rest of it. Okay, well, that's fair. Um, let me, let's move on to the Iran nuclear deal. Can I start yeah. it out, Tyler? Yeah, no me? problem. On the eve of a virtual summit, summit of world leaders on Friday, so this happened last Friday, um, United States took a major step towards restoring the Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration abandoned, offering to join European nations in what would have be the first substantial diplomacy with Tehran in more than the last four years. So the Iran nuclear deal, I don't know if you guys remember, um, 2015, Obama made the initiative that he wanted to create the Iran nuclear deal to help stabilize the relationship with Iran and help allow America and the global world to be in more involved in their development of nuclear weapons in Iran. So what has happened, in my opinion, is that, I mean, we all have our opinions on Iran. Iran is not a great country. They fund finance for plurality of majority of the terrorist activities that happen around the world. But, you know, there are people that feel like if Iran was opened up with the United States, then we could have more control over what Iran does. And I'm not against that. I'm a realist in the end of the day. I feel like, you know, it's a good thing that we have better relations with Iran. But... My problem is that 
this the the Iran nuclear deal itself had a lot of flaws, and the main flaws that it had was that Iran was still going to continue to build their nuclear weapon. America is just standing there. Iran's inspectors would be the ones organizing and checking out the you know you know the nuclear you know development going on, and then they would report to the U.S. and the United Nations. So you won't really accomplish anything. And I get it that you need to have a deal. But my problem is that there's there's no point of creating that deal back. Like you can create a new like negotiation with Iran. The problem with that deal is that Iran has gotten so much further in their nuclear development capabilities since 2015. We're not there anymore. We're in 2021. You didn't need to just sign some executive order to go back into some deal that was ripped up like seven years ago. Like, I have always not... hated the oversight issue. Like the fact that they were just overseeing themselves. It's the same issue with cops in America. It's like, they're okay. They're going to govern and oversee <laughs> and set rules for themselves. And we expect everything to function normally. And like, that's how you know, if we had some kind of international regulation, uh, same thing goes with China and COVID. We were, weren't, weren't able to get any uh, inspectors, any, anything in there. So we couldn't actually find out the origins of COVID. I think that's disgusting and it hurts us all. So if they're not going to let some, external body come in and regulate it i don't see the point to making a deal that's what i had that was essentially the only problem i have with it i, I think you're right Pratik. we need some kind of deal what are we just gonna have iran with nu- nuclear weapons and them and israel and saudi arabia all blowing each other up like that makes no sense and that's that's part of it too because i feel like you know from my studies and how i've studied a lot of the stuff with realist theory is that with the kissinger model you you have israel already with nuclear weapons Saudi Arabia may or may not have nuclear weapons and Iran's developing them. And we know that they've been developing them and they've been developing them since like 2012. And in 2015, we struck this deal so we can be more involved in the process of them developing them. I, we know that there is going to happen. My only issue is that why create some stupid deal that fell apart like six years ago, instead of just creating a new one that can model things that was, it was in the old deal but would be more aligned to what's going on right now. You didn't need to have some executive order to go back into but that. But it could you be symbolic of bringing back the Obama reason. era. I think a lot of why people voted for Biden is to bring, essentially bring back what they thought Obama I'm, was. I'm right? just saying that you have a Senate Foreign Relations Committee that is there for a reason, to make sure that whenever you have some kind of treaty that's there, that they are able to look at it and figure out whether it's the right thing to do or not. And there is a process to it. I just feel like with the Iran nuclear deal, like there was a lot of good stuff from it and there was a lot of bad stuff from it. I'm a realist more than a Republican on these issues. So like I am in agreement that we need to have some deal in place. I'm just saying that why create some old deal when you have to, you can create a new deal that has more things with what's going on right now. Yeah. With and so what's so your Nick, opinions, Nick? Yeah, Nick, let's get your response to that. So for me, I actually agree with you guys a lot. So it may be surprising to critique since we disagree on so many things, but for this, <laughs> I think we're in agreement. I think the entire point of having this deal is to have greater transparency into what Iran is doing with their um, nuclear research and their development. And so if you're not going to allow international inspectors in to look at your facilities, and you know, I, of course, I understand the whole sovereignty argument and Iran's a sovereign state, you know, they should be allowed to sort of govern themselves and the rest of it. But still in good faith, if you are trying to restore your ties with the international community, yeah. and if you see the new Biden administration as 
not as antagonistic as previous U.S.-Iranian relations, which there's a whole history we don't have to go into with the hostage crisis and everything else, the overthrow of the Shah, everything else. But in any case, I agree with you too. I think they should have inspectors on the ground. Otherwise, I mean, I, I sort of get the symbolism in a way, but uh, it kind of parallel to the, the Paris thing. I'm not seeing the practicality that much. But then again, I could just be, you know, un, underinformed on the subject. So last thing, um, I, I think that's good for that. We can just move on to the Russia stuff. Sure. Um, so with Biden, what Biden has basically has said is that he wants to try to condemn um, Russia on the world stage through the Munich thing. What was it called? The Munich Security Conference. It's a virtual conference, like all these conferences. It's like the, they have the teleprompters. All they had to do is read stuff. And, you know, what, what this is, I, I feel like it's a good thing that we are denouncing a lot of the acts that Russia has done in the past um, from, you know, them trying to kill that guy that was running against Putin by trying to drug him by other other acts of aggression that Russia has played with Ukraine and what their involvement is around the world with them bullying countries. I think it's a good thing. Uh, my only issue is that it's, it's just you're just doing it for show. It doesn't really mean anything. You're not going to change any of the ways that where Russia is involved in a lot of the stuff. They're still the main UN power. They're still a part of your G12 agreements. Everything that is happening right now in the world and the way it's happening is going to continue to happen. You're just getting a chance to speak on a teleprompter to try to show that you're trying to accomplish a bunch of stuff. And it's all going to be the same way as it was before. That's true. But I also think Biden needs to signal that we are no longer the Trump administration. We have a new tone to set with Russia and this is that tone. So I, you know, I, I feel like that, that was his approach to it. I think he's just trying to set a new precedent saying, look, Trump did not go hard on Russia. I'm going to go hard on Russia. And I'm okay with that. Nick, your thoughts? I agree with you guys. I think when it comes to Russia, like top of mind for most people is China. Um, but every once in a while, we get reminded what's going on with Russia in terms of, one, their influence over Western Europe in terms of national, natural mm -hmm. gas infrastructure and energy, two, their cybersecurity capabilities, three, their long history and, and somewhat success at espionage efforts and infiltrating other um, countries and stealing their secrets. And I think Russia- and natural resources. I mean, my God. Yeah, I, th <laughs> I think um, they're underestimated a lot of the time. And looking at even even if you go back to uh, the Ukraine before Ukraine, when Russia invaded the country of Georgia, and a lot of these things that are happening in um, the Southern Caucasus, I don't think any of that spells out like, oh, suddenly Putin's going to step off. And we, we can see it. He tried to po poison his opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, yep. and then threw him in jail for not attending his own trial. <laughs> Meanwhile, he couldn't attend the trial because he had been poisoned and was in the hospital. So Unconscious. I mean, <laughs> no, even... exactly. So the whole thing is just a total mess. And I think the Biden administration is doing the right thing by trying to at the very least, signal strongly through their words that they're going to take a tough, tougher stance on Russia. But they also, I think, recently signed on to the New START agreement um, for missiles. So I, I think did, we're going yeah. to see some cooperation there, but I think it's going to be a lot more tense and competitive than it was in the past.
But that's the necessary cooperation. The cooperation of let's not blow each other up. How do we not blow each other up? <laughs> that, that's all that agreement means. Uh, with yeah, that, though, do you guys have any final thoughts on uh, on any kind of foreign policy or Biden? Yeah, I mean, I, I only one last thing. I would just say it's a good thing that I, I'm as a realist, I think America is doing the right stuff and getting involved in a lot of these places. I just want to make sure that America keeps that aggression alive. We don't need to play soccer to countries like Russia and China because America is America. A lot of other countries around the world depend on what America does. Whether or not a lot of people around the world like to hear that or don't like to hear that, we are the face of military presence. Whenever anything bad happens around the world, whether there's a hurricane or tsunami or a terrorist attack, America is the first people there. And we help develop and finance a lot of the major things that happen all around the world from development and in building up a lot of these struggling countries to actually become something. Sure, we've screwed up, screwed up in places like South America, but for the larger context of things, America does a lot of good. And I'm just happy that I want to make sure that America is on the aggressive and doesn't play defense all the time. Okay. And with that, uh, we're actually going to hop back into what I mentioned before, the GameStop hearings. Earlier in February, uh, GameStop and AMC, a few stocks have started blowing up because retail investors, uh, they were uh, they were gathering on websites like Reddit, coming together to say, hey, there's a huge short interest on this stock, meaning people are betting that it's going to go down. And if we all buy it, we're going to cause what's called a short squeeze and send the price flying high. So GameStop went from like $20, $30 to $500 and then back down like now it's like $40. And it's that's been the past two weeks and it's been craziness. Because of this, everyone's been calling for some kind of regulation. They're saying the market's broken. There's so many problems. It's just all really interesting to me because there's market manipulation every single day, every single day. And we have no hearings about it. But the one time retail Retail investors, meaning anyone that's not an institutional investor, doesn't have all the information that the big institutions have. All those guys, whenever they're able to get an edge in the market, we need to regulate that because they've done something wrong. How did they figure out how to beat us? We're, we're so used to just being able to take their money and now they're fighting back. We don't like this. So it's just very odd to me that we have a hearing over this when every single day there are massive naked shorts happening. There's massive manipulation. These companies or hedge funds especially, because they don't have to report everything, are constantly manipulating things, and we have to accept it. But then the one time the retail investors have a chance to make some money, we get screwed over. And I'm not saying everyone made money. A lot of people lost money on this. A lot of people wrote it on the way down. I'm just saying, if we're looking into this, we should be look having hearings every single day about the shit that these guys get away with. So that's all I have to say about GameStop and deep fucking value. He is not a cat and he likes the stock. <laughs> Nick, how about you? What do you feel about the situation? Deep value, Keith, is an absolute legend. I, he I doubled down, he by did, the way. He did double down. He did a great job at the hearing. Um, you had all these older Congress people where, you know, I get it. You didn't grow up with the technology, but still, we've been working remotely for a year at this point. And every like 30 seconds, someone would be like clapping an eraser in the background you know, clicking their pen, coughing, drinking water aggressively. And it's like, yes. guys, just mute yourself. It's not, it's not that hard. Just step away, go do something else. Um, but I think what got under people's skin online as they were watching it is the types of questions. Now, obviously, not every member of Congress is going to have expertise in the financial arena. And frankly, a lot of their staffers, the political science kids are not financial whizzes. They're not going to have these groundbreaking, earth-shattering questions to ask people. They studied political science for a reason. They suck at math. What are you going <laughs> to ask them? Sorry, Pratik. No, no offense given. I also yeah, I studied political arts, science. So no what the hell? <laughs> but in any case, I think 
it just sort of highlighted the generation gap and some members of Congress not having such a great sense, but others really knocking it out of the park. I think there was a gentleman from Guam who had some like killer questions to people who were attending. I also found it a little <laughs> ironic that the uh, the guy from Melvin Capital, one of the hedge funds who lost a lot of money because of retail investors actually doing a good job this time. He had this whole sob story. He was sitting in this dimly lit room. He only had a <laughs> printer. It's like he had nothing to his name and everything was taken from him. And it's like, boo-hoo, dude, you're managing billions of dollars <laughs> in assets. And you know what? You got outsmarted. You took a risk and you lost. Sack up, man up, take the hit and move on with your life. But instead, he out the sob story. I don't know. that. That's my and, perspective. And just so people know, this guy, his name is Deep Value. Deep fucking value, I believe his name was. But essentially, he was <laughs> the one who started this whole trend. He said months ago, when GameStop was like $5, that it was severely underrated. Uh, the company is at least, worth at least, I think he said $25 at the time. But, you know, entertaining, but also a little scary to see how people react to this kind of market situation. I, we actually saw something similar in 2018, 2017 with MoviePass. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I remember writing that wave up and it was the exact same thing that happened. So this stuff happens. Beware, the market can do this to you. Closing thought is, if you're listening to this, if you're doing anything shady or you think you're going to make a lot of money, make sure you don't tell people about it. Make sure it's not highly publicized in the rest of it. Like, Look at Martin Shkreli, who is the farmer bro who jacked up prices on his drugs, his AIDS drugs, um, a few years ago. He got thrown in jail for securities fraud, something completely unrelated. But the thing is, he caused such a stink about it, went in front of the cameras and kept talking it up and just trying to be, you know, project this bad boy image. He bought the Wu-Tang album, all the rest of it. If he had just stayed quiet and done what all these other companies do, which they raise drug prices all the time with these pharmaceutical companies... And no one bats an eye. It's baked into the system. And a lot of politicians take money from those companies and contributions and lobbying. So I think it's true. I agree with everything y'all said. So, so, <laughs> I'll move on to the next topic. Um, yeah. House Democrats unveil full $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill with minimum wage increase. So I don't know if you guys remember two episodes ago, we talked about this in much more detail, but I'll just get a glimpse into it. And then I'll let Nick talk about what his thoughts are. So House Democrats took another step Friday in their effort to advance a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, which includes includes an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, 1,400 direct checks for Americans making $75,000 or less a year, an extension of $400 federal unemployment benefits, and more money for small businesses struggling amid the pandemic. So obviously, I don't think this is going anywhere because of the minimum wage process. And like, you know, many of us Republicans that are Republicans are Republicans because of things like the minimum wage, and we don't want it to go up. Because it helped directly well, impacts us as business owners. Well, so national minimum would, wage, right? That, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A federal minimum wage of fifteen dollars yeah, yeah. an hour. Yep. So this has been a very contested topic among a lot of Republicans, and most Republicans, I feel like, are in favor of not increasing the minimum wage. So I wanted to hear your thoughts, Nick. So what are your thoughts on this one point nine trillion dollars stimulus bill? So for the minimum wage, and then I'll get to the entire uh, package, I think it should be tied to inflation. The federal government already keeps track of different uh, differences in costs of living between every, you know, each different state, locality, the rest of it. They have those numbers internally. So I don't think it would be such a heavy lift to at least peg the minimum wage 
um, to those rising costs and to tie it at the very least to inflation so that you don't have to have this debate every other year on what should it be set at? What's the magic number? Just tie it to inflation and let, let the market work its magic. But as far as the entire bill, look, I think we need a lot to start kickstarting the economy again. The stock market does not give a shit, it seems like, whenever a new jobs report comes out and says, oh man, hundreds of thousands of people are, are newly unemployed. And then it all the stock, and then the S&P goes up again. And it's like, all right, well, well it doesn't matter. Clearly, the concentration of wealth and the concentration of generating no, the wealth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That's it. And I think that actually speaks to what both Republicans and Democrats, both with Trump, with his uh, right wing populism and some of the more progressives in the Democratic Party. I think it speaks to both narratives, which is that as corporations and others are sort of running away with these massive gains. Ordinary Americans are being left behind. And how do we level that playing field and make it so that the American dream is still attainable um, for, for years to come? And we have so, to remember why we lost it, because we lost manufacturing jobs that were accessible to everyone. You didn't have to be highly educated to get into these jobs. You can live a solid middle class life. But today, I mean, you can be maybe a truck driver. But when that goes away, like what are the jobs where you can just hop in? You can have a good life just for showing up every day and getting your work done. I wish we had that. But with technology advancing, it requires a, a more advanced and more advanced skill set over time. So it's going to be really difficult to overcome. And this goes into the universal basic income. I'm not sure minimum wage is the best way to go about it. I think tying it to inflation might help, but I think universal basic income is going to be inevitable. So do you think, Nick, um, because all, all the people that have listened to our show all know my opinions is that I'm really opposed to raising the minimum wage to that high of an extent because it's a $7 increase from what well, it is federally right at least. Federally. It's, yeah. And, but still like, you know, places like DC, it's different than places like North Carolina. You, exactly. can, you can probably sustain a higher minimum wage rate in DC than you can yep. here because we've always had a 725 minimum wage for a long time. I mean, people are used to it. You can't automatically just jump to a higher price hike like but that because it, but that would that were, completely detriment the economy. So but if they were I, nine, not seven twenty-five, that's reasonable. You know, if that's hey, tied to inflation, I can accept that. But fifteen I'm, is arbitrary to me. That's see, a, just what it seems. In, my, in all honesty, because of you know my situation as a business owner, I can't advocate for a higher minimum wage from a political side. I get it, but if you're going to do that, you have to do it gradually to like nine or ten dollars. I personally am not a fan of raising the minimum wage, but that's also because I have interest tied to it. So I can't advocate for it, if that makes sense. It's kind of like how Nick wouldn't advocate for natural gas yeah, for or oil because he doesn't like it. doesn't matter whether what it does or not. So He's going to be like an oil lobbyist one day, just <laughs> chilling out for <laughs> Just wait for Teague. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask Nick, um, so, do you, so my issue here is that it should have bro been broken up into increments. Like, I would rather you just have a bill straight up 1400 direct checks to people or and like throw in the $400 federal unemployment benefits or whatever, but have that in one bill. Don't have, I mean, and have that in separate bills. Don't have that all in one big $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. So you can vote on things incrementally. What are your thoughts? Do you think that's a good idea or like, would you rather just it be a big old package? So for me, I think, what you're saying sounds very appealing because that would sort of eliminate a lot of the appropriation writers like, oh, I want some extra money for my district. I'm going to throw something onto yeah. that bill and pass it along. I think it would eliminate a lot of that garbage, which people see and they get angry about. Um, and that doesn't look good for anyone. But what I would say is, given how frustrated you, me, and a lot of people are with how slow Congress is, I think unless 
you put a bill like this on the table where the stakes are pretty high, it's got a lot of coverage, there's pressure on them to actually get something done, work together and do something. I think unless you have those high stakes and that full package together, I think the chances of getting the individual pieces passed are a lot lower than passing the entire bill and just sort of chalking up, yeah, we're going to have some appropriations on there that may not make the most sense, but at least we're going to do the core of what we're trying to do, which is pass that larger package. I still think, though, that a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour can't pass. Like, and so, like, my- I, I agree is, with like, that. I it would disrupt the economic system too, that, too much. That's, that's too, like, obviously that side, I'm, I'm against raising the minimum wage and everybody knows that. But what I'm having an issue with is that I don't, I feel like we do need to get checks given to people that really need it. And the more and more crap you throw on a bill, the issue is that there's higher chances that it won't pass. And knowing Congress, this stuff is going to go through a bunch of different committee hearings and no Republican is going to pass this because Republicans care about a few things altogether. Every single Republican raising the minimum wage is one of those things that they are all, all anti and against. So like, I don't know. See that that's my perspective. I'm not It's not a middle that, ground, right? It's yeah. if yeah, it's not it's not finding the sweet spot, but I think that tying to inflation is a really good idea. I haven't really seen that brought about too much. I I actually agree with you, Pratik. I think look, on the subject, I know I just mentioned getting it in the bill is the best thing to do to actually get something passed, but like you were saying, when you throw something in that's just you know, the second anyone touches it, it's going to blow up in your face and it's not going to go anywhere. I think at that point, it's a little bit too reckless for the scale of aid that we need at this point in our country's history. And I personally, I wish Democrats um, would, maybe it's political theory, theater. I mean, what can I say? Yeah. I'm not I'm not an insider. I'm, I'm not working on the Hill, but I hope they at least take that out or alter it because even though I am in support of raising the federal minimum wage, like you were saying, realistically, that is not going to happen in the next couple of months where Republicans magically sign on and say, you know what? <laughs> I've been sleeping under a rock the whole time. Everything looks great. Let's go ahead and pass this. Sure thing. I don't think they're going to do that in the next couple of months or even the next couple of years. So having that on the table right now just sort of seems like a further impediment and another talking point in the making for both sides to say, oh, the other is unwilling to compromise. We'll never get anything done. And I think that's the wrong direction. All right. And on to our last topic of the day, we're actually going to be talking about Facebook. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been seeing in the news lately, but Facebook's been under fire because the country of Australia wanted to actually have them pay for the news they put on Facebook. And Facebook went to hell with you guys. We're actually just going to shut off news in all of Australia. So on Facebook in Australia at the moment, they don't have any news on any of their news feeds. And this becomes the reason I see this as such a big story is because it's truly governments coming to a head with these giant tech companies that think they, they govern themselves. They think they are governing bodies. They think they're actually more powerful than these countries, the governments themselves. When they're being told to regulate themselves, they say, no, we're actually going to deny you a service we know your people want and force political pressure to make uh, to make our outcome possible. So um, it's kind of scary to see the fact that they can have this kind of leverage over an entire country. And it's more than just one country. I believe Canada is also uh, looking into this, maybe uh, trying to force Facebook to pay for news, New Zealand, a few other countries. But yeah, I think we're going to see this problem more and more and more as they see themselves as unregulatable in a sense. So what do you guys think about this? Do you think it's an overstep by Facebook to say, you know, you want us to pay and eh, we're just going to shut it all off? So what's your thoughts, Nick? 
I think if I was a company and I was making a lot of money in a country and suddenly they put a law forth that was going to, you know, significantly cut some of my revenues in some way, I would fight like hell to make sure that they never passed that law. I, w- I think what they're doing is only logical. It's rational. But personally, if I was a citizen of that country, I'd tell them to get lost. I would be pissed about it. The fact that um, multinational corporations, I mean, we don't feel this as much in the United States, but some of the narrative on the left, on my own side a little bit, is that these multinational corporations come into developing countries and through the power of the U.S. government backing them, bully them around, force them to amend their laws, their markets, whatever. And I think this is sort of playing in reverse where this is a highly developed country. Australia is within the fold of you know our allies. And I think there's not a whole lot of difference between us, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, when it comes to ideas around freedom of speech. And I think this may start a domino effect in that conversation, like Kissinger, which Pratik, you mentioned earlier, someone that you oh liked. Boy. Um, oh my, he's such a neocon, Jesus. But <laughs> in any case, I think it's going to start, I'm hoping it starts the conversation again in this country where, you know, Trump said, oh, we got to repeal section 230. It's terrible. And everyone's like, oh, I hate Trump. I don't even want to listen to this. But now that he's out of the picture, I hope we start to take it a little bit more seriously and actually have sort of like what we did with Microsoft in the nineties, which people forget that Bill Gates had to go to Congress and they shit all over him. And he was not a, an incredibly well-liked public figure like he is today, which I know now you got the whole uh, microchipping stuff, but I'm rambling a little bit too much here. But in any case, I think the country of Australia, New Zealand, and others should take a stand against Facebook. And But on the other hand, Facebook's just doing what's rational to keep the revenues intact. And I agree I, with that, but doing what's rational is not always great for everyone. Like that, I think, That's why we have regulations. We don't let businesses always do what's rational. Why, why can't my business have a thousand slaves, you know? It's like, but Tyler, it's they rational. have a corporate social responsibility website. They talk about oh, all the good stuff they do. No, I their responsibility is actually to their shareholders. And it has to be because that's just part of the deal of being a public company. So My, my viewpoint go. is a little bit different from both of you guys. So I think that Facebook should be allowed to do whatever they want. But the people that listen to Facebook or the people that use Facebook and are following Facebook would essentially hold Facebook responsible whenever they are doing things that are anti their government. They are doing a bunch of shady stuff and they are doing things that are forcing, you know, countries to follow what they're going to do. Otherwise, they're not going to provide all their content. They have the right to do that. But in the end of the day, the people that are using Facebook in those countries would potentially not use Facebook anymore when they have to go through a paywall because they're not going to go out of their way to pay for some service. They're just going to move to another service. I think for news sites, though, because Pratik, I'm surprised you took that position because the issue in this case, frankly, is Australian media being paid for articles that people read through Facebook for free. And it's like, I, as the Australian government, if you're not backing your businesses to get some money for the stuff that they do in the first place, like imagine you put this podcast out and then someone else decides, wait, no, I want to repackage this and just put my name on it and say from Tyler and Pratik and then make some money off of it. You would be pissed. You'd be like, that's not right, dude. Give me some of that money that you're making. Let's at least talk about it. Don't just like yeah. steal my content and then sell it to people and make a bunch of money off of it. And that's the issue at hand. Agreed. So, and with that, we have our final topic. topic. We got, yeah, we got Cuomo. So Cuomo's been in the news, an investigation. Uh, 
critique. You have some information on this or Nick? Yeah. So um, this probe um, is examining Cuomo's administration's actions relating to nursing homes where they found um, footage and evidence saying that, um, what is it, Cuomo was putting people that had COVID into nursing homes and purposefully that led to a lot of people that were in nursing homes getting COVID themselves. And because nursing home populations are generally of older ages, they are at higher risk of COVID. So Cuomo indirectly by deciding to put um, the COVID patients in nursing homes potentially ended up putting all their lives at risk that were in their nursing homes. So this has been one of the major stories. Everybody's heard my opinion about it. I'm not a big fan of Cuomo. Cuomo is a whiner. Cuomo hasn't done much in this whole thing that has been good. But at the end of the day, I still have my new theory now that, I mean, I have to have some respect for people that handle these big old crises like this, even though I disagree with everything that they do. So (laughs) what are are your thoughts on this, Nick? So I think it's a lot less complicated than the whole political complexity that we're making it out to be. In simple terms, I think Cuomo loves older women. He's like Bubba the Love Sponge, but with more charm and better hair. And this guy, he's a smooth talker. He seduced one too many old foxy ladies in these nursing homes. And now he's trying to keep it from the press and cover it up. He doesn't want him to investigate and see the long list of lovers that he's got lined up in upstate New York. They don't want you to know. And that's why they've been hiding those numbers and not allowing people to report. Because if they started reporting that and appearing on site, they'd see Cuomo sneaking around the back and uh, having a, a wonderful date night with some of the ladies. Nick, watch out. You might suicide yourself. I, I don't know if I should put that on air. <laughs> Lucky for him, I'm not competing for uh, any of the uh, older. I'm, I'm trying to think no, but you'll, you'll get a secret out, man. You'll let oh, everyone know the truth. I've said too much already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Should it's I even dangerous post this? for me to come on this pod, Tyler? Can you cut that out? <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining for the podcast. Uh, uh, the, today was episode 17 of the Politicana podcast. We'll, of course, be back next week. Thank you for our guests, Nick and Pratik, uh, well, Pratik co-host. Nick, thank you for coming on. We always appreciate it. Uh, Pratik, any final closing thoughts? Nothing. I'm just, just hope everybody stays safe yep. uh, with the outages and everything going on. And yeah, hope everything goes back to normal. We can yeah, all if you're pray, in Texas hope- or somewhere in the South that's affected, we, we're feeling for you guys. Send in our wishes your way. So again, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time. See you guys.